I'm your host, Doug Berg, and welcome to Berg's Brain, a storytelling comedy show that will hopefully make you laugh, make you think, and make you want more. On this episode, I'll discuss people who think it's okay to brush and floss their teeth in the sink of a public restroom, airline passengers who can't coordinate their bathroom journey with the rollout of the snack cart, what a brilliant decision it was to have the Hells Angels handle security at the 1969 Altamont Speedway Free Music Festival, a surefire way to solve the Loch Ness Monster mystery, without a doubt the best opening line to a novel ever, my first threesome, and many, many more. So jump aboard the train, get a little insane, getting inside Berg's Brain. This episode of Berg's Brain is brought to you by Slimy Weasley Snake Oil Cell in South Carolina Senator Lindsey Olin Graham and his new snack product, Lindsey Graham Crackers. Lindsay and the team at Lindsay Graham Crackers decided to release this product after Lindsay recently discovered the teachings and preachings of Sylvester Graham, the inventor of the original Graham Cracker and leader of the 19th century temperance movement. Now, Sylvester's followers were called Grahamites, a term Lindsay gleefully borrowed as he now refers to his red-blooded, redneck, red-state constituents as Graham Crackermites. So good old Sylvester, well, he believed that minimizing pleasure and stimulating of all kinds, including the act of masturbation, coupled with vegetarian diet anchored by bread made from wheat costly ground at home, was how God intended people to live, and that following this natural law would keep people healthy. Now, while Lindsay himself don't adhere to Sylvester's code as Lindsay's a habitual masturbator and wouldn't know a vegetable if it hit him in his blue balls, Oh, in Lindsay's case, his red balls is the color blue just makes him, well, blue. Now, while the graham cracker is amazing on its own, it does raise the bar as the main ingredient in the preparation of that camp and trip classic, the s'more. Ever the reconstructionist, Lindsay and his graham cracker mites have recently put forth federal legislation changing the ingredients and design of the s'more. See, the good old boys at Lindsey Graham Crackers believe the ingredient change is necessary because the smoke consists of two brown Graham Crackers and a dark chocolate Hershey bar surrounded a burnt white marshmallow and in Lindsey's evil eyes, something white having to endure that level of integration and disproportion of colored ingredients, well, that goes again hundreds of years of southern tradition, civility, and, well, enslavement. So... In Lindsay's proposed Senate Bill SB 666, the small ingredient proportion places a priority on those fluffy white marshmallows, like a bag made of three, delicately placed between two delectable Lindsay Graham crackers. Keys, clothes, and the store are all you need. And what about the dark Hershey bar, you ask? With Lindsay Graham crackers a lovely light brown in color, arguably a slightly deeper shade of the pure white marshmallow, well... Ain't that enough goddamn color for the best round-the-fire cross-burning dessert ever? And remember, at Lindsey Graham Crackers, just like guests at all Trump hotels, the customer's not only always right, the customer's always white. So run out to the store, pick yourself up some Lindsey Graham Crackers, and make America Graham again. I'm Lindsey Graham, and I approve this ad, because I'm batshit crazy. Play us away, Peapod. So, 
there are two types of people in the world. Let me clarify. There are two types of men in the world, as what I'm about to describe is an exclusively male dynamic. And the way to determine what group you're in, what your classification is as a man, is how you behave when going number two. Not in the privacy of your own home, but in a public restroom, like at work, a restaurant, an airport. On one hand, you've got the church mouse, and I'm a proud card-carrying member of this club. See, when we church mice go number two in a public restroom, we sit in the stall, quiet, still, channeling invisibility. Now, if we're alone and know with 100% certainty no one else is in the bathroom, we might live it up a little in the form of emitting a small fart or not stressing over the sound of a dookie squeezing out our sphincters and splashing noisily below. Since we rarely have ever do this, when we get the chance for our poop to plunge loudly into the water like an Apollo mission space capsule plunging into the ocean after a successful lunar voyage, we're like kids in a candy store. Only this time, the dental filling extracting chewy Tootsie Roll isn't entering our pie holes, but exiting our bung holes. But all bets are off when another guy enters the stall next to us. Complete and utter nightmare. It takes every ounce of sphincter strength to hold it in as we try to wait till Kaka Carl finishes, flushes, and flees before we unloose the caboose under the noise of his hand washing at the sink. And it's not only guys next to us in stalls that create butt clenching stress. We church mice freak out when some bozo enters the restroom and hangs at the sink doing disgusting, annoying, non-public restroom activities like brushing his teeth or, worse yet, flossing. It's a public restroom, not a dentist's office, for Christ's sake. And if you're hell-bent on pursuing these disgusting oral undertakings at work, at least have the decency, the manners, to rinse the sink so as not to leave behind your lunch of stringy rib pieces, shredded kale, and popcorn kernel husks. I'll give you credit for what appears to be a healthy diet, but one look at the ghastly remnants and I'm jamming straight back to the shitter for a round of uncomfortably loud noise-making diarrhea. And over time, the church mouse has had to come up with creative diversions buffering any sound we make when another person answering the call of nature is separated from us by a mere half-inch of not very soundproof metal. Wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on a sec. They have soundproof booths on TV game shows. Why not soundproof booths in public restrooms? Our church mouse cup would runneth over and we'd let loose so much more freely that there's a damn good chance the toilet would runneth over as well. But until the soundproofing happens, we church mice will continue to mask any gaseous, defecating sounds by strategically coughing or aggressively pulling toilet paper from the roll, buffering the awkward sounds of pinching a loaf. Lately, I've taken to bringing a legal pad or newspaper into the crapper and loudly flipping the pages, obscuring any butt truffles while busting a gumpy. We church mice have such fear of the sounds we make while crapping at work that when we walk in and see an occupied stall, and if we don't have access to a legal pad or newspaper, we'll leave to find another bathroom on another floor. I've got no problem checking multiple floors if I have the time and the need to go is in an all-out emergency code brown. If I can hold it, I'll head to the urinal and pee, hoping and praying that by the time I finish, the rude son of a bitch invading my private pooping space has wrapped up his shit, literally and figuratively, and gets the hell out of there so I can do my business. And the very word business illustrates the importance, the value, the gravity we place on pooping. I mean, you never hear anyone say, I really gotta go, gotta take care of my recreational hobby. No, you take care of business, and in terms of gravity, it's clearly a downward spiral. For the church mouse, when it's just you alone, it's so nice, so peaceful. 
You're relaxed in your little zen space until some douchebag invades your world to drop off a deuce bag. We get super quiet, like one of those monks taking a vow of silence for 20 years, or like the kids in Jurassic Park hiding in the kitchen cabinet holding their breath as a terrifying velociraptor waits up just a few feet away for the slightest peep, or like a burglar standing behind the drapes in a bedroom when the homeowner returns early. And we church mice are a patient lot. Hell, I've waited upwards of an hour to make sure the bathroom's vacated just to be safe. We sit there like one of those incredibly resolute cicadas that wait 17 long years to emerge from the ground. And why do these red-eyed, loud-buzzing, original, shelter-in-place bugs stay underground for 17 years? I mean, you'd think a few rogue cicadas would occasionally question the Cicada Executive Committee and make a break for it in 16 years or even sooner. These patient pests wait 17 goddamn years below the Earth's surface, and after popping out, they eat and fuck constantly, then die in six weeks. Now, to most people, especially women, that sounds absurd. But to a guy, if we had the opportunity, the evolutionary directive, to fuck our asses off nonstop and eat everything in sight for a month and a half straight, and then bite the dust, there'd be a line a city block long to grab one of those 17-year underground passes. Back in the bathroom next to Saul in the stall, we'll wait and wait and wait till the guy's done his business and leaves. I'm doing my business, he's doing his business, it's a dog-eat-dog world in there, and we're both in the exporting business, liquidating our assets, and both of us are producing significant GDP, you know, gross doo-doo product, and honestly, I'm not thrilled about the bastard's hostile takeover of my place of business in which I do my business. Bottom line, we can't understand how some rude schmuck has the audacity to coil some rope at the same time and in the same goddamn stall next to us. Really? Now, 180 degrees from the church mouse, you've got the tuba-playing, no-fear-I-don't-give-a-crap bowl blasters. And these devil-may-care psychos have the ability, the confidence, the guts to just let it all out, loud and proud. For quiet guy church mouse, you sit mouth agape, shocked, can't believe anyone can do that. This sounds so thunderous, so disgusting, so over the top. We church mice are sickened by the gross blasts, and on the other hand, envious, thinking, God, why can't I do that? But there's no fucking way. And these billowing, blustering bull blasters tend to be the very same people that blow their noses into handkerchiefs like booming foghorns. What's with the alarming goose-honking sound when clearing their sinuses? They blow so hard it seems highly likely part of their prefrontal cortex will blast straight through their nostrils, smacking splat-dab into the cloth. And by the way, post the invention of Kleenex in 1924... Why the fuck would anyone blow their snot into a piece of fabric, fold the sticky wet cloth, and place it back into one of their pockets? I'm all for saving the trees, but not via that revolting method. So, while you clearly fall into one of these two categories, church, mouse, or bull blaster, there are times when the nature of the sewer missile fired from your launching pad of an ass crosses you over into the opposing group. When we church mice librarians have one of those splattering, diarrhea-filled, Hershey-squirt, gas-laden dumps and there's nothing we can do to stay silent, it's stressful, scary. On the flip side, there's times when Bolt Blaster has a smooth, solid, quiet floater, and I wonder if Bolt Blaster is bummed he isn't making his usual cacophony of sound. But that's not a huge deal for Bolt Blaster, as he can still be noisy blowing his nose into a handkerchief like a forceful foghorn. And while all public restrooms are challenging for church mice, the work bathroom is the toughest, the most formidable. Work's tricky because you're entering and exiting stalls around your fellow co-workers. 
It's one thing to make a stinky at home with your wife passing by, but it's a tad awkward when you stunk it up, left the stall, and your boss walks in. Pretty positive my supervisor gagging and nearly barfing after walking in on me cost me a raise last year. And where I work, I've encountered a very odd toilet milieu. I get in early every morning, and the cup of coffee I had at breakfast has done its intended task, and now I'm ready for a little private, quiet church mouse time. And every morning, I walk into the same empty stall, and there's the same oddly located turd stain high up on the back of the bowl, a few inches from the seat, nowhere near the water. Gazing at this bizarre Rorschach fecal inkblot test, I try to imagine the location and angle of the guy's sphincter, causing a mark that high up on the bowl as it's got to be at the absolute tip top of his butt crack and angled at least 30 degrees toward the rear. And while the location of the stain is peculiar, the other oddity is that the shape of the stain high up on the back of the bowl always looks exactly like prehistoric hunters attacking a woolly mammoth in one of those famous cave paintings at Let's Go France. And while this puzzling visual isn't a great way to start my day, I look on the bright side and think of all that time and money saved not flying to Europe since I see the same world-renowned cave-painted imagery high up on the back of my workplace shitter as one of my genetically challenged colleagues asses produces identical primordial masterpieces. And while I loathed all public latrines, one thing I appreciate about public water closets is the accessible toilets to better accommodate people with physical disabilities. I have a cousin who's disabled in a wheelchair, so I'm very aware of and sensitive to disabled situations to the point that I'll wait or find another bathroom rather than use a disabled stall if that's the only one open. But the other day, I really had to go, couldn't hold it. A dangerous code brown moment had no option because the other stalls were occupied, so I had to use the disabled cubicle. And I realized at that moment, I'd never actually been inside one. So, I tentatively opened the door. Holy Moses, it was massive. I saw two guys playing racquetball, a row of ballerinas doing leg stretches on that metal bar disabled folks used to get on and off the toilet, a few Boeing mechanics replacing a faulty 747 engine in this airplane hangar of a space. So, I dodged a few balls, asked the ballet class for a little privacy, and the 747s were repaired and cleared for takeoff as I settled back and enjoyed the roominess and quiet of the expansive booth. Kind of felt like I was flying first class at any second now. An attendant would pop in with a hot towel and a mimosa, and here the hot towel wouldn't be for my hands and face. And speaking of flying, what's with these passengers who can't coordinate when they need to piddle at the same time the flight attendants get the snack cart survival wagon rolling down the aisle? And come on, you hear the announcement over the PA that the in-flight food and beverage service is about to begin. You see flight attendants scurrying around in the back working the carts. So if you gotta go, now's the time to undo that buckle like they showed you how to in person and on the video as clearly more people aren't aware how seat buckling works than I estimated. So now's the time to get up. Go the opposite direction of the cart. Give yourself enough lead time to do your business and get back to your seat. It's really not that goddamn hard to plan for this. But there's always a fair number of unaware aviation idiots who wait way too fucking long and get stuck trying to get back to their seats that the snack cart survival wagon has passed many, many rows ago. Rows ago. Sounds like a great name for a drive through discount florist. Rows ago. Anyway, unfortunately and unimaginably, the airborne snack and beverage push cart, keeping the tradition alive of the original hot dog and pretzel carts, once the icon and lifeblood of a New York City boroughs, this cart that may be perfect for flight attendants, but is designed about two inches too wide as it always bashes into aisle seat-loving passengers. 
Well, this rolling cart of care package comforts now blocks their lame-ass path. So, last second less than in 35B, well, this schmuck's failed to grasp the snack cart restroom tango, and he's standing right now next to where I'm seated, and I've got this, please, Jesus, I pray he's wiped his ass, ass, and my sourpuss kisser, while the attendants who've been working their butts off now have to back the cart up, beep, 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 thereby delaying the in-flight service while last second Lasseter slinks back to his seat in a perp walk of shame. Anyway. Back on the ground in a public restroom, and isn't the word restroom a bit odd? Supposedly, back in the early 1900s, upscale restaurants and theaters had comfortable chairs or sofas located in the room directly adjacent to the toilet where you could rest. Oh, great. You just had a lovely meal at a well-known turn-of-the-century Upper East Side eatery like Ted's Tattish Grill, or you just saw the 1902 Broadway hit When Johnny Comes Marching Home, so why not head to the restroom and rest up on a comfy couch while watching your fellow restaurateurs and theatergoers go pee-pee and poopy? Oh, how I yearn for yonder glory days of restrooms full of furnishings with my fave, the lavatory love seat. And remember, the turn of the century was a time in our history when people were thin, lean, less sedentary, able to move about with less physical demands, so not sure how much they needed to rest. In today's world, with 42.4% of Americans classified as obese, Shuffling the 30 feet from one's office down the hall to the toilet or from a row of Vegas slot machines where players sit on their asses smoking and drink for hours and then need to empty their toxic bladders. When these supersizers finally get to the john, they gotta take a load off. They gotta rest in that rest room. We in America, we as a society, we the people, we need our rest. In court, after all the BS arguing for days on end, it's so taxing on the plaintiffs and defendants' attorneys, they both rest. Your Honor, the state rests. And what say you, defense counsel? Your Honor, the defense also rests. We're really tired. Spent. Got nothing left in the bank. And Your Honor, as you well know, my esteemed colleague and I have been lying to you, the jury, our clients for weeks now, and it takes its toll. So as we discussed in chambers earlier today, we want to rest. We need to rest. We're going to rest now and forever. So help me God, as long as we both shall live, amen and a women. And rest is without a doubt genetic in our DNA as God, for those of you who believe in God, well, God was the first, best, and perhaps most deserving of rest as according to the book of Genesis, God created the world in six action-packed days, then rested on the seventh. So rest was clearly a very important activity right from the get-go. And as humans, allegedly being made in God's image, we followed suit creating restrooms for all the hard taxing work of whizzing and shitting. And we didn't stop there. On the freeways and byways zigzagging across America the Beautiful, we set up rest areas every few miles, as God knows steering, lane chaining while crushing a couple Big Macs, or finding a radio station out in rural areas that don't play country or preach about Jesus can really take its toll on you. So you need to rest. And I saw one of the stranger rest areas on the 101 freeway in California driving down to pick up my son at UCSB. Prior to the rest area, off to the side, was a billboard with a photo of a stressed-out guy, head in his hands, and underneath the photo was written, Anxiety? Jesus offers rest. Well, I thought it was some creative Christian standalone sign promoting the calming powers of Jesus. But a couple miles down the road, off to my right, was another sign that read, Jesus Rest Stop. You're saved. It was an entire rest stop dedicated to Jesus, and at the exit ramp to the area, stood a number of those scary-looking religious people who have apparently given their entire lives over to Jesus, 
holding signs like pull over for Jesus, hit the road for Jesus, and of course, Jesus offers rest. As I passed the expansive rest area, I observed hundreds of RVs, semis, tour buses, and a whole slew of rundown cars under a sign that read Jalopies for Jesus. And off in the distance were tons of people gathered in prayer, happy, content, and yes, arguably, at rest. And while I've got nothing against Jesus, Jesus just ain't my scene. So I waved and passed by as the sign holders put their hands in prayer for me as I continued down the freeway. Well, after a few miles, I kind of felt a little fatigued and contemplated that maybe I should have pulled over to get some Christ-inspired rest when I came across a second billboard with a picture of a devil, pitchfork raised to the sky, with the words underneath, Temptation, Satan helps. Well, after seeing that Jesus offers rest and Temptation, Satan helps billboards within a stone's throw of each other, my first thought was, this is a pretty damn competitive strip of road for religious advertisements. What billboard's coming down the pike next? The Jesus Motel? We've got AC? Satan's Motor Lodge doesn't? So, a few miles later, I see another large sign that reads, There's no rest in Satan's rest area. Now, in contrast to the Jesus Offers Rest rest stop, at the exit ramp to Satan's rest stop stood bikini-clad women, Hell's Angels bikers, and every Republican politician from the present Congress. And I would have pulled off as I'm a big fan of bikini-clad women. I've always had a fascination with the Hell's Angels. But the thought of taking a piss and getting a soda with Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, Lindsey Graham, Devin Nunes, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and any other grand old party pieces of shit? Well, if Jesus ain't my cup of tea, these MAGA assholes are kombucha, and I fucking hate kombucha. And back to the Hell's Angels for a sec. Many of you may not remember that the Hells Angels were hired as security at the infamous 1969 Ultimate Speedway Free Music Festival, a Woodstock West of sorts held in Northern California. So clearly a different day and a different time when the Hells Angels are your number one choice for security. See, the Angels were hired by the Rolling Stones management on the recommendation of the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane. Let's take a closer look at that decision. You've decided to hire the world's most notorious bad boys, convicts, criminals, thugs, and biker gang on the recommendation of the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane, two of the seminal free love acid trip 60s rock bands who were highest kites during the summer of love and any other summer for that matter. And I've always found it rather ironic that the summer of love started at the corner of Hate and Ashbury. Anyway, you'd think working security at an all-day, all-night rock concert the fee would have been pretty hefty for such an intimidating and extortionist gangbanger group like the goddamn Hells Angels. Well, you'd be wrong. Very fucking wrong. As the Hells Angels agreed to and were paid $500 in beer to bring on the stones and keep the crazies off the stage. Okay, sure, back in the 60s, the cost of living was a hell of a lot less than it is now. And let's say beers were 50 cents. So with approximately 500 angels in attendance... That's basically two beers per angels over the course of an all-day, all-night, party-your-ass-off music festival. What was the Stones' first offer, and how did the angels get to the final amount up to the whopping sum of $500? Did Jagger chime in? Yeah, mate, how's ten quid with a beer float, you boat? And the angels' representatives countered with, Fuck you, Brit, these boys ain't securing your little rock show for one drop less than $500 in suds. Sounds like the Angels had the same attorney my dad had for every one of his seven divorces. $500 in beer? The only deal worse than that had to be the 1626 sale of the island of Manhattan by indigenous inhabitants to the Dutch for $24 worth of beads and trinkets. 
gotta wonder if any of the Native Americans who sold Manhattan were founding members of the Hells Angels. So, back on the freeway, I'm ready to pull over into Satan's rest stop with sexy girls and leather-clad bikers, but since congressional Republicans and I are about as good a fit as a Speedo on anyone named Bubba, I kept driving leaving Satan and Jesus in my rearview mirror. And the craziest thing, as I look back at Jesus and Satan in my rearview mirror, they were holding hands and looking at each other with what I'd say was, well, longing, affection, dare I say, love. Anyway, back in non-rest area restrooms, you know, real brick-and-mortar restaurant or theater ones across this great country, fortunately, comfy chairs and sofas are no longer standard decor, so us more in shape people don't have to tinkle or scat with Bubba, Billy Bob, or Cletus ogling from a barca lounger or a lazy boy. Although I gotta tell you, there's numerous times when I'm taking a squirt at a urinal and a roly-poly chunky chubster settles up next to me doing this heavy-labored, out-of-breath breathing, I may have a heart attack right next to me thing. You want to look over, but you can't look over as that goes against the unwritten urinal rules. Kind of like the unwritten rules of baseball, only instead of being beamed for stealing signs, you'll get your head and hear your head refers to the head on your shoulders, not the head on your pecker, smashed against the porcelain if you as much as glance at your urinal buddy's baton. And as this peeing tub of goo snorts and wheezes and huffs and puffs next to you, all you're thinking is, if you're this out of breath draining the lizard, Wiz Khalifa, maybe you ought to get in for an EKG or one of those treadmill stress tests pronto, as you ain't got a long time to live. And if you're making this kind of olfactory racket pissing, what the hell do you sound like when taking a shit? A French bulldog with sleep apnea? And let's face it. Public restrooms are shrouded in mystery for both sexes. We really don't know what goes on in the other's commode, and we really don't want to know. I mean, a guy might wonder about the enigmatic goings-on in a woman's restroom because to a guy, there's a lot of extremely quiet pooping, significant reapplying of makeup, and a guy's worst public restroom nightmare, chatting. Because that never happens in a men's room according to the unwritten rules. So while a guy might wonder what happens inside the woman's room, there's absolutely no reason, and it's completely understandable, why a woman would ever contemplate the inner workings of a men's room. I'm a man. I've been in the bowels of the beast. I've seen the hidden, unpleasant underbelly. I've heard the cacophony of caca. I've smelled the putrid piss, and frankly, it's revolting, repulsive, yucko. So, since neither sex truly knows the sordid secret details... Women have no idea there's this whole urinal scenario in men's restrooms depending on the layout, number of urinals, and who's standing there when you walk in. See, women have a significant separation advantage in their lavatories. With no urinals, only stalls, women always have some semblance of privacy. But for men just needing to drain the vein, we've got this whole urinal dilemma. The best and preferred urinal setup is one stall, one urinal. That way, there's no lemonade-losing Larry next to you, and having a dude draining his snake less than an arm's length away from you can be stage-fright stressful, especially if he fails to follow the unwritten urinal rule of never looking anywhere but straight ahead and you catch him doing a glance-over. It's alarming as hell if these wandering IP creepers sneak a peek at your wee-wee. Now, the only downside to the one urinal layout is you have to wait if there's a guy or two in front of you, but trust me, it's worth the wait. It's like the important constitutional notion of one person, one vote, except here it's one urinal, one pee. Now, the next best configuration to the one urinal arrangement is a two urinal setup. 
two, while not as comforting as one, is much better than the row of three porcelain pish portals as you only worry about one guy on one side. So you can slightly angle your body away from your co-pisser, maintaining a bit of privacy while whizzing away. The pressure starts to ratchet up when you walk in and see a row of three urinals. Now, if there's no one there, happy days, as you simply pick an end one, as that way if another guy pops in, he grabs the other end one, and the distance between the two of you is comfortable, safe, without the risk of a glance over. The tricky situation is when you walk in and see two guys bookending the three, and your only option is becoming the white creamy filling in between two black Oreo cookie pieces. There is more potential stage fright being in between two men than at the Broadway premiere of the horror movie made into the play Friday the 13th. And on occasion, many of us white guys have literally been the creamy white center filly of an Oreo cookie when zipping and dripping between two black guys. And this real-life Oreo situation is rife with fears and challenges. And while not to stereotype, if you're the white guy cream in the middle of two black cookies, odds are you're the one that's drawn the short straw. Last time this happened to me, the Oreo cookie anxiety caused the head of my Jewish penis to retract like the top of a Boca Raton rabbi's Cadillac convertible, even though my schmeckle had lost its retractable awning foreskin eight days into its life on earth at a standing room only bris. Then there's the mother of all men's room urinal layouts. Long rows of piss pots at airports, sporting events, huge hotels, casinos. You walk in and see 10, 15, 20 latrines, one after another. Now, the good thing is, when they're not packed full, you get some separation and room to go without the pea creeper glance over or the Oreo cookie conundrum. The bad thing is when, especially at sporting events, you gotta wait in that long conga line that starts outside the bathroom and winds in an agonizingly slow snail's pace all the way inside where you see a crowd, a herd, a gaggle, for God's sakes, of men pissing, which always reminds me of that 1983 hip-hop song by the Weather Girls, It's raining, men! Hallelujah, it's raining, man. Amen. As that's basically what it's doing in every men's room at every large-scale sporting event. And once inside, you wait your turn like one of a thousand antelopes squeezing into a Serengeti watering hole trying to avoid the surprise attack of a submerged crocodile. And with that many men's wangs a-hanging and a-pissing, the stage fright's so palpable that if you were able to squeeze out a few drops of tinkle under that kind of pressure, well, you ought to win the stage ultimate award, a goddamn Tony. Because I'll tell you, once doubt sets in, not even extra strength Drano could unclog your pipe's blockage, so you got to go with plan B. Head over to the smaller line in front of the stalls and wait it out like a weeing wuss that you really are. Putting this in perspective for women... We're so afraid of the group herd gaggle public piss that we'll wait for a stall and endure the stinking shit stench of some fanatic face-painted fat ass who sucked down nine beers, four brats, two bags of peanuts, a basket of nachos, and some garlic fries. This wannabe competitive eater exits the stall, you walk in, and you're immediately hit with a gag-inducing skunk rotten egg sewage combo scent. Your eyes tear up, you want to barf, but you suck it up, head inside, lock the door, and hold your breath as long as humanly possible, as the benefit of piddling in private outweighs the ghastly odor. Now, as bad as all this sounds, it pales in comparison to the old days when I was growing up. See, back in the 60s and 70s, when you went to Winkle at a professional baseball, football, or basketball game, there weren't rows of urinals. No, what you encountered and couldn't fathom the first time you saw it, and I'm not making this up, were troughs. Yeah, troughs, like the kinds horses drink from or cows eat oats or corn or whatever the fuck cows eat out of troughs. It was like being a participant in one of those bogus penthouse forum reader letters describing a Guinness World Record for the largest circle jerk ever, 
except this extravaganza was true. Dear Forum, I know your stories typically start out with, I'm a freshman at a small Midwestern university, but at this time, I'm a frightened eight-year-old boy who never thought he'd be an unwilling partaker in a massive public face-to-face pissing match, and then it happened to me. And if the idea of hundreds of men and boys taking a splash in a trough doesn't blow your mind, the even crazier thing was that the trough wasn't against the wall with all of us pissing facing the same direction. No, the piss planner who designed this traumatizing, troublesome trough placed it smack dab in the middle of the room so that men and boys stood facing each other like irritated airline passengers waiting around one of those baggage claim carousels. So, while you looked right in the eyes and at the junk of your fellow yellow urinators, they looked right back at you, which flies directly in the face of the unwritten public bathroom urination rule of not looking at another guy's wiener while whizzing next to him. And of course, guys being guys, especially drunk guys being drunk guys, well, let's just say we all witnessed our fair share of proverbial sword fights with piss spouting, arcing, and dancing like the well-choreographed bi-hourly fountain show at the Bellagio. How this diabolical design got approved and installed is beyond me. And of all these larger venues for men to wee-wee in, the most confusing ones are airports. There's no rhyme or reason. Sometimes there's a few banks of urinals in one room, then there's this other back room that has another hidden, tucked-away set that you think might be for the pilots or the flight crew. It's like every airport restroom was designed by that trippy Spanish architect, Antoni Gaudi. And in terms of updated designs over the past few years, a new urinal approach has come into play. One standard adult urinal adjacent to a kid-sized pea potty. Again, this was not an option back in the treacherous trough times. Like ADA public restroom requirements, you'll see the adult-kid tandem in most bathrooms nowadays. And with the adult and kid urinals, you experience opposite ends of the pissing spectrum. You happen to get the adult one, and the guy next to you gets the kids? Well, you naturally feel your penis has to be larger and more manly than the little pisser pissing next to you. On the flip side, when you get the little kid's potty, you're immediately thrown back to childhood and the first time you had the tinkle next to some giant cigar-smoking, six-foot, 300-pound, tatted-up adult who looked over and commented in that deep, raspy, nicotine-impacted voice, Eh, don't worry about it, kid. One day you'll be able to find it without a magnifying glass. <laughs> Z laughed condescendingly while coughing up cigar smoke as his old man pissed blasted the ball with so much force you thought he'd blow a hole right in the fucking porcelain. And while this schmuck probably thought his attempted humor might relax you, all it did was freak you out and block your ability to take a leak like a golf ball-sized kidney stone. Peeing in the kid's potty makes you feel like you're an adult at one of those nightmarish, dysfunctional family holiday dinners where Aunt Miriam just seated you at the kid's table next to four screaming nieces and nephews and hard-of-hearing, musty-smelling great-grandmama Minette. And there's another thing women never encounter in their bathrooms. This lovely little activity entails the consistent but odd practice of guys walking up to the urinal, unzipping, and spitting in before piddling. Ladies, I'm not making this up. For you, this would be like sitting down on the toilet and before pishing, spreading your legs wider, leaning your head down, and hocking a loogie between your knees into the water below. Men spitting into urinals? It's a goddamn miracle you agree to marry us. Now, I don't happen to perform the spit take, but you'd be surprised how many men do especially men of an older generation. A few years ago, I was at the racetrack playing the ponies, and I'm in the restroom standing at a bank of three urinals when an older guy saunters up next to me carrying the racing form and, of course, puffing, or more accurately, chewing on a wet, soggy cigar. And wouldn't you know, a split second before I hear the unzipping of his trousers, 
racetrack Ralph's projectile saliva slams into the back of the pea palace. After witnessing this bizarre move for so many years, I broke the unwritten rule and said, without looking over, of course, You know, hope you don't mind me asking, but I see so many guys spit before they whiz in public restrooms. Do you know why we do it? Racetrack Ralph laughed just like the old guy who made fun of me when I was at the little kid's potty, and without looking up from his tattered racing form said, Ah, 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 guess we do it just to get the juices flowing, kid. And at that moment, a light went off, or more accurately, a lightsaber went off, as I felt like Luke Skywalker getting lavatory life lessons from Yoda. Young Luke, it is only after you spit into the porcelain that you can truly let go of everything you fear, including your urine. Also, remember, Master Luke, size matters not. Just take a look at my wang. And lastly, my eager apprentice, you must understand, be unwavering, and know that a Jedi strength not only flows from the Force, it also flows from his schlong. And besides spitting into urinals to get your juices flowing, there's another exclusively male dynamic that occurs in bathrooms, and this goes for any bathroom, public, like in a restaurant, or private in one's apartment or one's house. See, men multitask on the john, and women don't. And men have been multitasking while dropping juices from the beginning of time, or at least since the advent of the written word. Go back to our earliest history when Moses climbed Mount Sinai and God handed him the Ten Commandments carved by God's finger into two large pieces of stone. Moses reviewed them with God for days on end while the people of Israel down below had become impatient waiting for Moses to return with a message from God. Now Moses had been gone for so long that the people gave up on him and built an altar out of gold in the shape of a calf for idol worship, thereby acting in direct disobedience to God's new commands. A golden statue of a baby cow? Who knew the Jews had such an affinity for Hebrew Holsteins, or as they were called back in Jerusalem, Holsteins? To this day, there's an unsubstantiated story about a modest minion of Meshuggah Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai that proposed a golden idol of a pig over the heifer, but they were quickly stoned to death by a group of kosher-keeping overzealous Zionists. Now, when Moses finally came down from the mountain with the tablets of stone, his anger raged as he saw his people given over to idolatry. He threw down the two tablets, smashing them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. Then Moses destroyed the golden calf, burning it to fire. A few days later, God instructed Moses to chisel two new stone tablets, just like the ones God had written with his own finger. Now, here's where multitasking on the john comes into play. As once Moses had the new tablets, and right after he reread the Ten Commandments to all the Israelites, so they were 100% clear of no golden cows and definitely no golden pigs, He excused himself, went behind a bush, in this case a burning bush, as Moses had a really bad bout of diarrhea that numerous boxes of unleavened bread, a.k.a. matzah, couldn't even clog up. And while Moses squatted behind the bush and did his business, he read the Ten Commandments over and over and over until he painfully let his people go, so to speak, through his separated cheeks, much like the parting of the Red Sea he and his flock had undergone on their way to Mount Sinai. And from that day forward... Men and reading on the toilet became indelibly burned into our DNA, culminating in the late 20th century when every Sunday, an astounding number of men would read the New York Times cover to cover before wiping, flushing, and exiting the bathroom. And this genetic connection to reading and pooping begs the question, what do illiterate men do on the toilet? How do they get by? How do they pass the time? 
I mean, if you're sitting on the throne going number two, you better know how to read or God fucking help you. Now, this man-only-reading-while-shitting scenario had been the way of the world for thousands of years, but I figured this must have changed with the advent of the smartphone. Prior to its invention, women never brought the Sunday Times into the shitter like men did. Hell, my wife, daughter, and every woman I know never brings anything into the bathroom to read. Not even a matchbook cover or a fortune cookie or the tiniest little thing to read. Nothing. But I figured even though a woman's priority is still a quick, fast poop and get the hell out of there, I assumed women, just like men, who were now glued to their smartphones, well, they'd have their phones in the bathroom and certainly use the device for reading. Ah, contraire mon ami. According to my lovely bride, who I often ask for input for Berg's Brain episodes when the topic involves men and women, when I asked her to validate my premise of women using smartphones to read while pooping, her response was a resounding, Now why the fuck would you think that? Who in their right mind would spend any more time around their smelly-ass shit than necessary? Certainly not a woman. That's a disgusting guy thing. So you'd never pull a phone out and read on the potty? Dude, the only time I use my phone in the bathroom is when I wake up at night and need the flashlight feature so I go from the bed to the john. Wow, okay. And what really amazes me is that a guy will read Tolstoy's War and Peace sitting on the crapper with a steaming poop beneath his hairy ass, but God forbid a man will read one page of a goddamn book on the couch or in bed. Wow, she had a point. Couldn't argue with that. Now, while men and their bathroom habits, actions, and behaviors are nauseating, women do something that men don't that is rather disgusting in a different way. Over the last decade plus, many of us have been made aware of environmental concerns at our dwindling critical survival source, water. And the statistics show that when flushing a toilet, every person in America uses nearly three and a half gallons of water per day, times five, the number of times We flush our toilet per day, times 365 days a year, equaling 6,387.5 gallons per year per person. And if you multiply that by 334 million, the number of people in the U.S., over the course of a year, we use and in essence waste over 2 billion gallons of water. So, to course correct and save water, a catchy slogan hit the scene a few years ago. If it's pee, let it be. If it's brown, flush it down. And I, along with many environmentally conscientious people, follow this jingle's directive. And for the most part, it works. See, when a guy pees and we let it be, it's not a huge deal. It might have the musty smell of Dale Budweiser or leftover sausage pizza, but it's just pee, so let it be. But when a woman pees and lets it be, this gets kind of dicey. See, unlike men who, when peeing, simply shake the snake and off we go... When women finish peeing, they wipe and discard the teepee in the bowl. Now, in the old days when we could care less about water conservation, Florence flushed and the bowl returned to its clean, pristine state. Nowadays, since it's pee, Laura lets it be, adhering to the water-saving slogan strategy. But, unlike a toilet bowl containing a man's liquid leak, here the bowl is littered with a yellow-stained, soiled toilet paper clinging to the porcelain like a Charmin starfish. This mushy blob has the appearance of a Mr. Chow's doughy dim sum dumpling. How you envision cholesterol sticking to the sides of your clogged arteries, or a soggy dunked in water hot dog bun by Joey Chestnut and all his competitive eating buddies at the Nathan's Fourth of July hot dog eating contest. And beyond the not so pleasant mushy teepee visual, if enough of it builds up on the front wall of the bowl, and as you as a guy sit down to make a deposit, 
and the tip of your wee-wee brushes against the not-so-charmin-charmin? Well, it is the same irritating sensation of sitting by a pool as an adult when a kid jumps in next to you and the splashed water hits your skin, which you think should feel good on a hot summer day, but it feels like a goddamn waterboarding torture. So, I think the water conservation jingle needs a tweak, an update, too. If it's pee, let it be. If it's brown, flush it down. And if it's yellow pee-stained toilet paper doubling as a dunked-in-water hot dog bun stuck to the side of the bowl, ladies, get a scraper and flush the mush to vapor. And by the way, how the hell does that Joey Chestnut character eat upwards of 70 hot dogs in 10 minutes at the Nathan's 4th of July contest? Can you imagine if your daughter started dating Joey over the summer and she brought him to the annual family barbecue in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and you weren't up on the sport of competitive eating, so you had no idea who Joey Chestnut was? So, your man on the grill, sipping on an ice-cold Liney Kugel summer shandy, and overwalks Joey. Hey, Mr. Johnson, thanks for having me today. Our pleasure, Joey. Really great to meet you. So are you a burger, brat, or dog kind of guy? Uh, I'm partial to the hot dog, if you don't mind, Mr. Johnson. Oh, me too. I'll throw a few of me on for you. How many do you think you'll eat? Uh, I don't know, maybe 65, 70? Ah, uh, 65, 70. Oh, that's a good one. Hannah told me you're a real card. Wait till I tell Miss Johnson that one. Oh, your sarcasm's gonna fit right in with this family. Uh, well, actually not joking, Mr. Johnson. I think I can wolf down around 70 today. Oh, okay, Mr. Eskermeyer. I'll throw another 60 on you from the grill for you there. Jeez, you're like that Andy Kaufman guy who never breaks character, do ya? Uh, thanks, Mr. Johnson, but if it's not too much trouble, I like my hot dogs boiled, not grilled. Uh, yeah, yeah, you want your dogs boiled. Hannah sure knows how to pick them. Okie dokie. Well, why don't you give me a few secs, because I'll have to run up to the garage and grab me an extra large crab pat. Uh, and since you're such a big fan of the boiled hot dog, Mr. Frankfurter, how would you like me to grill your buns? Um, no, that won't be necessary, Mr. Johnson. I prefer them fresh, right out of the bag. All right, then, Joey. So, uh, 70 boiled hot dogs and an equal number of buns right out of the bag. Anything else I can get you there, Carnival Sideshow Boy? Well, if it's not too much trouble, could you bring me a few large pitchers of water as I really like to dip and soak my buns while chowing down the dogs? Yeah, you want to soak your buns into water. Oh boy, two pitchers and a garden hose are coming right up. Thanks, Mr. Johnson. Hannah said you were one hell of a dad. Uh, Mighty kind of you there, Joey. Hey, as a soaked hot dog bun connoisseur like yourself, can I ask you one other thing before I go and grab my crab pat? Sure, Mr. Johnson. You know the TP women wipe their tinkle wit and leave in the crapper without flushing as we got that whole if it's pee, let it be campaign? Don't you think the water TP kind of looks like a waterlogged bun? Oh my God, Mr. Johnson, I've been saying that for years. But I gotta tell you, sir, as the world's hot dog eating king, it's not one of my favorite visuals. Oh yeah, that's gotta be a tough one to swallow. And staying on the competitive eating angle a tad longer... Can you imagine what goes on backstage after the competition? You've got men and women who've ingested thousands of boiled hot dogs and water-soaked buns, and now they're puking, pooping, and praying to the porcelain punch bowl? And just a hunch, but I doubt anyone in competitive eating is a member of the Church Mouse Club, as don't think the music playing backstage is Simon and Garfunkel's The Sound of Silence. I mean, the thundering shit sounds could wake the dead, while at the same time the pungent stench could kill you. It's like a fucking Zen chat riddle no one can solve. 
And the thing is, and what most people are unaware of, is that these competitive eaters do a lot of fucking training. They work at it, consider themselves athletes. And God help you if one of these athletes walks into one of your all-you-can-eat smorgasbords, because if you own one of these establishments, you're going to lose your shirt, and then they're going to lose their shit, literally and loudly. After which, you'll be placing a call to your maintenance crew to unclog one of your jam johns and a guy from the local water district to check and recheck your water tables. Anyway, back to public bathroom stalls. And whether a disabled stall or a standard one, Fortunately, most newer toilets have gotten rid of that you-never-really-want-to-touch flush handle. Older versions still have the flush handle, but no one in their right mind touches the germ-laden lever with your hand to flush the toilet. Yuck! Ooh! Gross! Like the unwritten rules of baseball and the unwritten rules of hanging a Yui next to a guy at a urinal, everybody knows you go into Bruce Lee, feet of fury, raised leg, foot, kick the flushing mechanism as you slowly kung fu your ass out of that germ-laden stall, after which you immediately chuck your shoes into the nearest trash can. Thank God modern ones have an electronic motion beam sensor on the back, causing the toilet to flush as soon as you get up and move out of the butt beam. Top ten invention of all time. Now, occasionally, you need to force-trigger the shit sensor to do a fast first flush because you took a huge stinker of a log and you want to get the smell down and out before the next person comes in. So, you have to get up, angle around, doing a side-to-side Cardi B butt dance like in her bounce-inspired City Girl twerk video. And nowadays, some toilets are water-saving environmentally friendly with two push buttons on top, one for pee and one for poop. Does anyone really notice the difference in the amount of water used for pee versus poop? Seems like the amount of water is exactly the same to me. What we really need is a third bright red danger button for those two-ton titanic turds requiring Niagara Falls force to blast the BM into oblivion. And one thing that really drives me crazy, and I know it disgusts the entire population of women, is when you go into a unisex bathroom at a bar or a restaurant and the toilet seat's covered with that lethal lemonade. Really, dude? It's a pretty big opening, good 8 to 10 inches, maybe more. You can't whisk the target without hitting the seat. You need to sit. It's like that game Operation, and when you touch the sides with the tweezer, it buzzes and shocks you. Should be the same for guys taking a squirt standing up in a toilet. Your piss hits the seat, and electrical shock zaps you right in the nuts. This painful, penalizing cojones consequence would definitely make guys a skosh more accurate. And who needs a breathalyzer or a sobriety checkpoint to catch drunk drivers? Can't winkle standing up without splattering the seat? Then you ain't getting behind the wheel. Another round and imposing toilet-like shape. And it's not like guys don't get practice tinkling standing up, as every wall-mounted journal has the small plastic mesh target splash guard device with wonderful product names like the Tidy Guard, the Lavex, and my favorite, the Splash Hog. These three to four inch across splash protectors function as mini target practice, so later, when you drain the main vein into the john with a significantly larger opening, you ought to be able to avoid spraying the goddamn seat. Now, one of the largest makers of these urinal splash reduction pads is a Petaluma company called Fishman's, and their slogan on every splash guard as you look down while pissing is Fishman's. Real people, real service, real value. Real people, real service, real value? think that slogan misses the mark, literally and figuratively. Seems like the marketing team at Fishman's could have capitalized on the nature of the product a little better. How about Fishman's, what a pisser? Fishman's, now you've got a pot to piss in. Or Fishman's, why don't you just piss off? And while women have to deal with the revolting pea-splattered toilet seat, they rarely if ever have to deal with a situation men do often multiple times a day. 
And the lovely thing I'm talking about is standing at a urinal, looking down and seeing one or more pubic hairs. And I don't want to be considered profiling or racist, but they're almost always black. Dark, curly, barbed, wiry, black. If you flossed your teeth with these strands, you'd rip your gum to shreds. I mean, can you imagine what a urinal looks like in the Middle East? Gotta be more wiry black hair plastered to the sides of the bowl than after a full day of shampoos and rinses at Hannah's hair haberdashery in Haifa. And it's odd, but you never see a blonde pubic hairs left behind. Hell, I bet you could travel all summer in Scandinavia and never see a stray pube. And to spice up the act of public peeing, whenever I encounter a lingering pube, I play a little water sport game trying to whiz the black pubes past the fisherman's splash hog. This activity doubles as a great way to pass the time and improve my aim, so later when drunk in a bar and whizzing in a unisex bathroom, I never hit the toilet seat. But the craziest thing to me is how these stray pubic hairs get there. Been taking leaks in urinals for over 50 years and never witnessed one of my guys making a run for it. And then, last Tuesday evening, it finally happened. I'm at the airport, walk into the bathroom, navigate the Antoni Gaudi maze design, find a urinal, unzip my fly, and poof, one of my pubes leaps out and prison breaks into the piss pot. And I swear I could make out the faint sounds and shouts of the other pubes yelling, go, go, go. But clearly pubes aren't the smartest hairs on your body, as this rogue pube could have leapt out into a comfortable bed or on a cushy couch or onto my wife's inviting vulva. But this schmuck of a hair follicle decides to make a break for it in the CD Ramshackle Southwest Terminal Airport urinal. And as I took in this attempted escape, I have to tell you, I was a little pissed. Who does this curly-haired prick think he is leaving my other happy, content, well-groomed pubes? I'm like, I'll show you, you good-for-nothing, ungrateful pissant of a pube. So I slowly and methodically start peeing this ungrateful, renegade pube toward the fishman's real people, real service, real values splash guard, and this wiry son of a bitch is fighting like a 12-foot-long, 2,000-pound marlin on the line of a deep-sea fisherman. He's not going down easy, but to no avail is my recently consumed 40-ounce boot of Budweiser at the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport easily provided the requisite piss stream forced to send this perfidious pube on a one-ray cruise. Yippee-ki-yay, bon voyage, motherfucker, hope you took swimming lessons. And while pubes hanging out in urinals are a common occurrence, a week or so ago, I was in the office, popped into the restroom for a quick pee, and there to the right of the urinal, about head high, was a black curly pubic hair dangling on the wall. Seeing something like that messes with your mind. You do a double take, and in this case, a triple take. Look, I get the pubic hair floating around in the urinal. The little friendly follicle slips out as you whip it out, and with gravity, lands into the porcelain pond. But this proud, poised pubic hair was way higher than the bull, almost above my head. Talk about Darwin's theory of natural selection and survival of the fittest. Can you comprehend the fortitude, the energy, the drive of this one ambitious pubic hair leaping out of one of my co-workers' pants, bypassing the river of death, ascending a slippery tiled wall, and attaching itself without glue, hands, or carabiners? Hell, I've seen climbers on Yosemite's El Capitan with less strength and tenacity. And while this greedy feat alone is beyond impressive, what made it even more unbelievable was that every time I went back to pee over the next month, the persevering pube was still there, holding on, unflappable. So in addition to surviving the two-foot vertical sideways groin area leap onto the Everest-like sheer glacial terrain of the slick-tiled wall, this powerful, persistent, purposeful pube survived over 30 janitorial cleanings. 
All that disgusting shredded kale, stringy rib pieces, and popcorn kernel husks strewn about the sink after some inconsiderate co-worker's brush and floss fortunately got washed down the sink during an after-hours janitorial sesh. But one wispy, wiry, Spider-Man-like pube managed to avoid janitorial detection and defy gravity for a month. Witnessing this achievement firsthand, I have a whole new respect for the furry, fuzzy, forbidden forest fuckstash growing in my nether region. Anyway, let's get back to going number two. As you get older, your goal with pooping moves beyond childish and teenager interests like size, shape, and smell to the somewhat boring but critically important concept of being regular. Meaning, first you want to be able to poop, and second, poop at similar times of day, like as soon as you wake up or immediately after your morning cup of joe, as what better way to start your day? Okay, well, maybe sex would be a slightly better starter, but when you hit 60, coming takes a backseat to going. And I don't know about you. But you ever have those odd days where you wake up, drop anchor, wipe, and before you even get off the toilet, you have to drop anchor again? So now you gotta wipe a second time. You complete dump number two, jump in the shower, and unbelievably you gotta pinch a third loaf. So you finish the shower, poop, wipe, dress, grab your keys and briefcase, and just before you leave the house, are you kidding me? You gotta unloose the caboose again? That's four dookies before 9 a.m. and you start to worry you're shitting something out of you that you need, like your spleen or your gallbladder. And you wonder, what the hell happened? As yesterday, my sphincter had a nice paced rhythm, opening once in the morning, once after lunch, and once after dinner, and all of a sudden, without warning, my ass has suddenly become a nonstop perpetual Dairy Queen soft serve machine? How the hell did I go from regular guy to Winnie the goddamn Pooh? And while four sewer missiles before work can be alarming and exhausting... I had a BM the other day that was, well, mysterious, a head-scratcher, otherworldly. Woke up, got out of bed, but didn't drag a comb across my head as I don't have that kind of hair anymore. Fortunately, my regularity kicked in, so I headed right to the crapper, and before sitting down, I weighed myself, 155 pounds. And as a 62-year-old 5'7 male, I was good with that. Damn good with that. So back on the john, I took a good-sized, solid, substantial shark dart like the ones you take the following morning after eating a couple ears of corn the night before? Fascinating how corn on the cob goes in as a connected unit and exits the same way as your kernel-containing poop looks almost identical in shape and texture to the cob. Corn is so communal, sticking together on the cob, separating when you eat it, then coming back together as it leaves your body on its one-way water-slide ride. And that two ears of corn dump looked and felt like it had to weigh a couple pounds easy. So ever the curious guy, I got back on the scale, and I'm not shitting you, my weight went from 155 to 157. I took a substantial solid corn kernel dookie and gained two goddamn pounds. Now, I know there's some unexplainable shit out there in the world, like UFOs, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, how Trump got elected. But at the head of the pack, the leader in the clubhouse, the founding father on the Mount Rushmore of unexplainable shit has to be, how the fuck does one gain weight after dropping a few taters in the old crock pot? And like an all-in-the-weeds, no-stone, unturned laboratory research poopologist, I tried to repeat this several hundred times, and never, not once, not one time, as my weight ever increased after feeding the fish. Wouldn't surprise me in the least that if this pre-poop, post-poop weight gain phenomenon made it onto the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, it would have been the most watched episode in the show's 35-year run. And by the way, what's the deal with Nessie, our favorite coy, bashful Loch Ness monster? Shrouded in mystery, real or hoax, and those iffy, grainy, hard-to-see Kodaks and Super 8 films. Now, unlike scores of bumbling backwoods buffoons tracking down Sasquatch or the United States Air Force launching its entire fleet to track UFOs, 
There's a simple solution to validate Nessie. And I'm shocked that all of these cryptozoologists studying unknown legendary or extinct animals haven't thought of it. And here it is. Plain as day, clear as a bell. Drain the fucking lake. Or drain the fucking lock. Or if you're Trump or a Trumpster, drain the fucking swamp. All you gotta do is set up a couple cameras, send out a few dozen drones, get a turbo-powered 250-gallon Zoller M98 sump pump, and drain the goddamn lock. And either Nessie's there or Nessie's not. Case closed, done, deal, move the fuck on. Maybe it's time to focus your little myth-busting efforts on far more important enigmas, like what really is the mystery behind the Winchester Mystery House? Was there a second gunman on the grassy knoll? As it seems pretty fucking clear there was. Or if a penny dropped from the top of the Eiffel Tower could actually kill someone whose only cranial protection was a hip, poet, beatnik, counterculture, cool-ass fucking beret. Now, while solving the enigma of our clandestine creature nervous Nelly is a noble cause, let's get back to the theme of this episode, puzzling poops and specifically corn kernel containing caca for a sec. Maybe it's due to the compact, solid texture, but corn turds always feel like they squeeze out perfectly. No residue. No need to wipe. And I'm a purist, play-by-the-rules kind of potty guy. And to ascend to the perfect poop echelon, you can't wipe. Because if you wipe, and even if there's not one iota of a stain on the TP, it's no longer a perfect poop. It's a good poop, maybe even a great poop, but not perfect. For it to be perfect, you have to know, have to trust, that it's clean as a whistle. Which is a saying I've never understood, as by the sheer nature of blowing into a whistle, it can't be very clean, can it? Any of you see a guy blowing into a whistle during COVID and handing it to a cohort to follow suit? Yeah, me neither. Now, on the extreme opposite end of the perfect poop, one that's not in any way perfect, is when you release the payload, reach over, roll up a wad of TP, go to wipe your ass, and fuck, you somehow miscalculated the water level in the bowl and your hand dunks in the muck, the mire, and the mare. You pull your hand up faster than if you touched a hot goddamn stove. It's ghastly. Horrible. And I can see how this might happen in an unfamiliar toilet that you've never used before, but when it happens in your own house, on your own goddamn john, you're in shock. I've wiped my ass thousands of times on that toilet and never taken the unpleasant plunge, and then this time I do? Much rather I don't. Whenever this poo-poo boo-boo occurs, I immediately get a representative from the local municipal water district out to the house to see if the water tables in our neighborhood have suddenly risen without my knowledge, so I don't ever want to make that detestable doo-doo dip again. And if there's been no change to the water table, just to be on the safe side, I'll call a plumber, who for some reason can figure out leaks and other interesting water-related things, but doesn't have a clue how to cover his S-crack while he's working on any plumbing-related tasks in your house. And these horrific hand-dunking boom-boom baptisms aren't limited to hands, as we've all had that unfortunate moment when you get out of bed, throw on your robe, head to the porcelain throne, stalk the lake with brown trout, carefully wipe, making absolutely 100% certain there's no poop plunge, stand up, and just as you're about to flush, the belt from your robe swings unevenly and one-sidedly downward, dripping its velour fabric into the shat vat. So now you have to slowly extract the sloppy shit snake and gently swing it over towards the sink as you disrobe, reach into the cabinet, put on your handy hazmat suit, wrap the radioactive robe in a plastic biohazard bag and take it to the local dump since your robe carelessly came in contact with your dump. And back to the idea of being regular for a sec. Regularness, for me, is something I've consciously avoided. For my entire life, I never wanted to be regular, which I associated with normal, boring, humdrum. Hell, I did everything I could to not be regular. When I was growing up, most men didn't wear earrings, and most men that did wear earrings were gay. 
During my first few weeks of freshman year at Northwestern, I met some super cute girls, and after partying all night, one of the girls said I'd look really cool with an earring. Drunk, stoned, and at least three narcotic-level drugs off my ass as the sun was rising, I wasn't planning on making a decision that involved puncturing any part of my body to add an extra non-evolutionary or God-given hole. But the combination of the drugs and the possibility that adding an earring to make me a bad boy would help me bet one or both bubbly co-eds were all the encouragement I needed, so I said, fuck yeah, let's do it. Okay, I agree. Yeah, fuck yeah, let's do it. Wasn't one of my better or more creative retorts, but it did the trick as both girls energetically hugged me. But agreeing to the piercing was just step one, as now we had to decide which ear. Clearly a novice to piercing, I asked them which ear they thought I should do. Annie, the cute blonde from nearby Skokie, who had this enticing smell of an everything bagel with a hint of locks as her dad owned Salmon Highs, a famous must-eat deli where she worked mornings prior to school, said, Well, one time at the deli, I heard my Uncle Saul say, Right is right, left is wrong. And in this case, wrong according to Uncle Saul, unfortunately, was a euphemism for gay. Here I am, wasted off my ass, just trying to get laid, and now I'm dealing with the word euphemism, of which I have no fucking idea what it means, and second, I have to choose an ear stoned out of my gourd that represents my views on important social, cultural, political, and gender positions for the rest of my life. Jesus Christ, that kind of pressure caused me to start sweating more than trying to unhook Michelle Stern's bra during my first makeup party in seventh grade. And for historical context, the year of the ear piercing was 1978, and at that time, I didn't have any gay friends, didn't know any gay people, and that was fairly standard for the majority of heteros at that time. Wasn't like it is today. See, back then, the closet was pretty damn crowded, and God forbid you were gay and claustrophobic. That would have been a fucking nightmare. So in terms of the right-is-right, left-is-wrong decision, and having never contemplated an ear-piercing, I was completely unaware of this negative, derogatory reference, left-is-wrong, right-is-right euphemism. And while I can see back at that time that that decision could be dicey for some, fortunately for me, not wanting to be regular and wanting to buck the system in any way possible, I confidently said to my irresistible ear-piercers, well, if left is wrong and wrong means I'm gay, then left it is. Fuck those assholes that think being gay is wrong. Now, I'd love to say I was fully committed to this belief and modeled ideal behavior of speaking up for and living by the right social, ethical, and moral choices, including accepting everyone no matter their sexual preference. And while this was certainly part of it, let's face it, let's be honest. I also made the choice to be a bad boy in order to attract two sexy co-eds, and it worked, as they excitedly hugged and kissed me. Maybe they thought I was hip or cooler. Maybe they thought I was in the closet gay and they were going to do as so many women tended to do with gay men back then. Try to change them to hetero. And if that didn't work, become their besties for shopping sprees, late night clubbing, and the catty, hilarious ripping of tacky outfits worn walking down Oscar's red carpet. So, upon my choice of left as not wrong, Tina, the dark-haired girl from Manhattan that smelled like a hero, not because she worked at a nearby family-owned Greek restaurant, but because she has taken a bite of one, jumped up, opened her small dorm room fridge, grabbed an apple and an ice cube while Annie reached into her nightstand drawer and pulled out a gigantic needle like the ones my bubby said used to macrame taluses and yarmulkes back in the old country. And while needles and me were about as good a fit as Speedo and anyone named Bubba, with my one-track 18-year-old mind of wanting to get laid and only get laid so help me God or any other bogus deity, I would have let everything bagel and luck-smelling Annie and hero-scented Tina ram goddamn javelins through either of my lower lobes. Now, while you'd think being drunk, stoned, and having an iced-up ear would alleviate the pain of the needle, not even close, as that narrow metal sewing device rammed through your ear hurts like a bitch. Upon the first stinging stab of the knitting needle, I suddenly went from bad boy to mama's boy, fighting back the tears. 
And the ice apple needle shot tequila technique made me think back to those barbaric anesthesia methods used during the Civil War, where the doc had you swig a few whiskeys and bite on a bullet while cauterizing the wound with a sword before lopping off your leg with a rusty bone saw. Giving a Confederate or Union soldier about to become a Civil War casualty amputee bourbon and bullets to ease the pain? Why, that's so decent, so courteous, so... civil. Oh, so that's where the Civil War got its name. Son of a bitch. Well... Back in the dorm room, the ear piercing did its trick as it led to the first of my two threesomes. And like the traumatic, scarring, pissing circle jerk from my childhood, this one with Annie and Tina again reminded me of one of those Penthouse Magazine forum reader write-in section that always started off with, Dear Penthouse, I'm a freshman at a small Western university and I never thought this would happen to me. Then proceeds to describe a night of sordid debauchery and sex, which we all know is complete bullshit that didn't happen to you, as there's no fucking way that that many freshmen co-eds were getting laid at that many small Western universities. And truth be told, my first threesome with Annie and Tina wasn't one to write home about, as I hoped to show off my sexual prowess and staying power, but being stoned and having the munchies, the intoxicating savory smell of everything bagels, locks, and heroes caused me to shoot my load faster than a late-game scrub playing for the Chicago Bulls trying to avoid a 24-second shot clock violation. Well, the very next day after my piercing threesome, I'm eating in the cafeteria when this well-dressed, clean-cut freshman sits next to me and in a rather effeminate voice says, Well, isn't that a shame? What's a shame, I replied. You not being gay, because you're just my type. Huh? Well, your earring's in the left ear, and as they say, left is right, right is wrong, and with wrong being a euphemism for gay. So, guess you're one of those heteros. Now, while the clean-cut, well-dressed freshman's retort was flattering... It was also bothersome on a couple levels. First, how many fucking times am I going to have to hear the word euphemism in less than 24 fucking hours? Second, the whole left-right thing? With two different interpretations, who was right and who was wrong? So I replied, hold on a sec. I got my ear pierced last night by two coets, and the one from Skokie that smelled like an everything bagel with a hint of locks told me the exact opposite. Her uncle told her, right is right, left is wrong, so I get the left ear pierced to intensely go against such bullshit bigotry and prejudice. Well, I appreciate your sentiment and support, but you got it backwards, sweetie. But if you got time later, stop by my pad and I'll pierce the right one by piercing the right one, he said as he winked and walked away. Fuck! Clearly, the decision to pierce my left ear was done out of compassion and support for gay people and to tell prejudiced assholes to shove it up their ass which I now know is a euphemism for fuck you, buddy. But I realized one's convictions and beliefs only go so far when confronted with the thought of another round with the ice, apple, and needle and the anticipated excruciating pain to now pierce my left ear and get it right from a right and wrong moral point of view. Look, I'm all for gay rights, equality, fairness, doing the right thing, but social consciousness and commitment take a backseat to torture as there wasn't enough tequila in Mexico to repeat the piercing pain to show my gay pride. Now, my second and final threesome to date occurred just a few years after my freshman ear piercing. This one happening during my junior year, when I got to be friends with two hot waitresses that worked at one of the lettuce entertaining Chicago-based chain of restaurants called Fritz That's It. For some reason, my highest success rate of meeting and dating women were ones that worked as waitresses. Waitresses were in my wheelhouse. I think it's because I'm genuinely friendly, courteous, and fortunately able to make women laugh. And as we all know, sense of humor is high on the list of attractiveness for women, and a really good sense of humor can add an inch to an inch and a half to your penis length or girth or whatever pleasure measurement floats your boats, especially the little man in the boat coxswain calling out stroke, stroke, stroke while fastidiously guarding the north entrance to a woman's vagina. And while sense of humor is all the rage for women, 
For men, this correlates to tits and ass. Hmm, sense of humor, tits and ass. It's a wonder men and women ever get together, and no wonder the divorce rate is over 50%. So it just doesn't seem to be enough tits and ass knock-knock jokes. Fortunately, my second threesome went much better than my first, dramatically improving upon the 24-second shot clock violation, this time lasting just a smidge short of the cooking time for minute rice. And I'll never forget about another waitress encounter I had some 20 years later after I'd moved to San Francisco and took a media relations position with a New York-based company called Video Monitoring Services. Our CEO was a fantastic man named Bob Cohen. Bob was in his late 60s, but incredibly energetic and, you know, young at heart. And yeah, Bob was a bit old school, as a true-to-life advertising exec from the madman era of life, so he could play the slightly dirty older man, but he always did so in a funny and respectful way, especially when engaging with waitresses we'd encountered during business meals. He was just one of those guys who loved women. The sexier, the better. Nowadays, yeah, his behavior could be interpreted as borderline, but in the early 90s, before all the awareness and changes, that wasn't the case. So every quarter, Bob came out to visit me. Poked around the office, discussed biz, and ended his stay by treating me to a great meal at the new hip, trendy SF hotspot, or one of the older traditional classics that it was my job to find. Now on this visit, Bob went a traditional Italian, so I made a reservation at Fior d'Italia, first established in 1886 in the heart of North Beach and promoted as America's oldest Italian restaurant. So let's take a look at that claim a sec. America's oldest Italian restaurant? First, Remember that famous, albeit brutal, barbaric SOB Italian explorer, Christopher Columbus, who discovered the Americas in 1492? So the first Americans in America arrived in 1492. About 150 years later, in the early 1600s, a larger influx of Italian immigrants settled throughout many of the northernmost 13 original colonies, you know, like New York and Jersey and Delaware. So over the last 400 years, with significant numbers of Italians settling in America, you mean to tell me that a culture that lives for and loves to cook and eat food failed to open a restaurant until 1886, and when they did, they opened it all the way across the country in San Francisco? Forget about it. Well, Bob was incredibly impressed at the decor and ambience of America's allegedly oldest Italian restaurant, and as we sat down, an incredibly attractive and sexy waitress popped by. Bob gave me the look as his eyes lit up, and I knew he'd be in rare form tonight. We engaged in some small talk as this young, sexy, witty, and playful gem took our cocktail order, and off she went gliding through the restaurant as if a spotlight singled out for all to see. I knew the restaurant hit the mark from a food and design element, but this unexpected addition of our spectacular waitress was a daily double and one that might just get me a big raise. Knowing the rest of the dinner waitress interplay was chock full of potential, I needed to make sure I had all my faculties, so I excused myself and headed to the can to take care of business. As I entered the luxurious bathroom, which was surprisingly small and intimate, about the size of a small kitchen, I saw something that you see in upscale restaurants, theaters, and hotels, but you don't want to see in upscale restaurants, theaters, and hotels, or any restroom for that matter. It's a concept you can't really wrap your head around, especially in modern times. Sitting on a stool in the bathroom was a formally clothed vest and tie wearing attendant. And I'm not stating this to be prejudiced or stereotypical. I'm just pointing out a fact that the dapperly dressed attendant was an older black gentleman in keeping with the long-standing tradition of attendance in public restrooms being black a clear throwback to the days of slavery and indentured servitude to the white racist race. Seeing this black bathroom attendant, I couldn't help feeling I was somewhere deep in the South or playing a well-to-do Bon Vivant character in a Shirley Temple movie. Now, I'd encountered this uncomfortable black attendant set up numerous times in numerous bathrooms, but this one was markedly different. First, the size of this bathroom was tiny, 
So with only one urinal and one stall, there was no escaping the intimidating intimacy. Second, the stall was an older traditional model made of beautiful cherry wood with wooden slats along the walls. Third, the black attendant wasn't standing near the sink organizing all those goodies like cloth towels, breath mints, and chewing gum. Here, due to the tiny layout of the shitting shanty, the attendant was seated on a stool adjacent to the cherry wood stall, so close he could lean his head and shoulder against the cherry wood. You couldn't slide an index card between the stall and the attendant seated on his stool, less than a foot away from where you'd be leaving your stool. And as I stood there in shock of how I, a card-carrying church mouse member, was going to pull this off, I was snapped back to reality by the loud bull blasting just a few feet away from inside the cherry wood stall. Oh my god, there'd been some guy in there shitting the whole time? What the fuck? The incredibly close quarters must have made this the penultimate poop, even for a bull blaster. I don't have that gene, just don't know how they do it. Now, if I only had to pee, this wouldn't have been a huge issue, because the urinal was tucked tightly into the corner of the tiny room, and the seated attendant wasn't close enough to break an unwritten rule and do the look-over. Unfortunately, this time a pee wasn't going to cut it. I had to cut some brownies. And the thought of the dapper attendant seated less than an inch away, resting his head against the stall, well, that was a daunting undertaking. And as I racked my brain on how I was going to go about the business of doing my business, I heard the toilet flush. And no sooner does the door open, one out walks Jerry Dorfman, one of our head IT guys in my office. And typical of geeky IT guys with zero social skills, he sees me, beelines over the nine feet across the fucking kitchenette, and says, Holy shit, Doug! Doug Bird! No way! As he reaches out to shake my hands prior to washing his hands. So I quickly backed away right into the wall of the cramped space, put both hands up against my chest in a this-isn't-a-great-time-to-shake-fucking-hands move, and said, Hey, Jer, I think I'm coming down with a bug, so best not to do the touching thing at this point, because I don't want to get you sick. What's well, damn considerate of you, Doug? Jer replied as he walked over to the sink and again, before washing his hands, reached into his sport coat pocket, pulled out a roll of floss, and began flossing his goddamn teeth with his shit-stained fingers. Christ, Jer's the ball blaster and a bathroom flosser guy. Oh! And then I froze. Caught between watching Jer floss food particles into the sink as I thought about the poor attendant cleaning that shit up, and the next move following bowl blasting Jer into what I imagined was not a pretty sight or smell inside the cherrywood stall. Unable to watch Jer's dental hygiene histrionics continue, I said, Hey man, see you tomorrow at the office, and Jer shot back, Hey, have a blast in the crapper, as he loudly guffawed. Fortunately, the attendant got up from his stool to hand Jer a towel and offer up some mints as I made the slow walk the plank perp walk into the cherry wood shit and piss abyss. I opened the door and entered. Imagine airplane bathroom dimensions, then divide that in half. This classic San Francisco restaurant bathroom was nowhere near up to date present code, with no chance in hell of being ADA certified disabled bathroom and stumbling upon a racquetball match, a ballet class, or a Boeing airline mechanic was highly unlikely. And if Fiord Italia was indeed the oldest Italian restaurant with the oldest Italian restaurant bathroom in America, then based upon the minuscule size of the bathroom, mob bosses who ate here must have had nicknames like Polly One Stripe Pajamas Pantaloni, Bobby Baby Balls Bonifacio, and Tony Tiny Tojas Tarantino. And just as I undid my belt and pulled down my trousers in the tight toilet quarters with the dexterity and wriggling ability of Houdini getting out of a straitjacket routine, I looked down at the john and saw the unmistakable, high up on the back of the bowl cave painting image of prehistoric hunters attacking a woolly mammoth and realized, holy fucking shit, Jerry the IT guy was my co-worker with the spectacular splattering sphincter. 
And solving the ill-positioned sphincter mystery must have caused my mind to go blank as I'd been staring at Jer's artwork, or in this case, his arsework, for over a minute when I heard the attendant from his stage fright-inducing stool a mere inch away say, Everything all right in there? You need anything, boss? I sat down quietly and replied, No, all good, thanks, to the well-dressed, formerly attired black man seated so close to me that if the slatted wood door wasn't there, he could have easily reached over and wiped my lily white ass easily. Here I am, Charlie Churchmouse, alone with a too-close-for-comfort attendant and no newspaper to crumble to draw out my greasing the bowl. Okay, so how's this going to go, I pondered with a quick reflection. Not very fucking well. Sitting in that old cherry wood stall with the attendant leaning against it, I felt like a parishioner giving confession at St. Hilary's Church with Father O'Malley sliding open the slot and asking me not to confess my sins, but if the preparation he'd recommended had got rid of my painful fucking hemorrhoids. And I imagined my standard opening line of confession would change from Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned, to forgive me, Father, for I have shat. To which the disappointed priest would offer up ten Hail Marys, twenty Glory Bees, thirty Our Fathers, a decade of the Rosary, and a case of Glade Lavender Air Freshener. So I sat for a few minutes and realized there was no way in hell I was going to be able to go. I had only one recourse. So I asked the attendant how much people usually tip for towels, mints, etc. He said, few bucks is standard, but some big shots hand me twenties and fifties every now and then. Tell you what, I said, if you go outside for a minute or two so I can take care of business, give you a hunsky. You shit me, he replied, as we both chuckled at the pun. I reached into my slack, strewn at my feet, pulled out my money clip, snagged a C-note, and fed it through the wooden slats. The attendant snatched the bill and said, I'll be outside, guard the door. Take your time, boss. Well, upon hearing the door close, I breathed a huge sigh of relief, literally catching my breath from all the unnecessary and unexpected stress undergone in the last fucking few minutes. Sitting in the tiny wooden commode, I first reflected on the bizarre attendant and the tightly quartered bathroom experience, and my mind harkened back, because no one ever seems to harken forward, to another bizarre and uncomfortable public restroom situation from a few years earlier. I was attending a jazz concert held at a local high school, one that I'd never been inside of before. So to enhance the music, I had a few drinks, got stoned, and was feeling great. Just before the show started, I felt the sudden urge to decorate the Oval Office. Figured I'd better take care of this little toilet task now rather than sit through the first act struggling to hold it in. So I exited the auditorium, noticed their bathroom sign pointing upstairs at the top of the stairs, spied another sign with an arrow directing me down the hall. Well, I walked along the lengthy corridor, looking at an inspirational artwork and massive amounts of student memorabilia when I came upon the restroom and I finally headed in. It was a church mouse's dream. Not a soul inside with a row of three stalls. So I threw caution to the wind, choosing the middle one as my dumping den. Hallelujah! Don't think I'd ever been that relaxed and at ease in a public restroom before. So I'm taking my sweet time, chilling, when off in the distance I hear the clickety-clack of high heels walking down the hallway and the rapid-fire gossip exchange of two women chatting away. I was tucked away in my caca cubby and wasn't super focused on them when suddenly... The heels and voices entered the goddamn bathroom where I, Mr. Churchmouse, was sitting and shitting. I was flummoxed in shock. Why the hell were these two women inside the fucking men's room? No unisex bathroom sign, because this was back in the 80s. Therefore, no unisex bathroom. So what the fuck? And that's when an incredibly scary realization hit me over the head like a pallet of tampons dropping from the top rack of a Costco aisle. In that unmistakable voiceover of Rod Serling at the beginning of his 1960s sci-fi parable TV show called The Twilight Zone, I heard this eerie teaser. You mistakenly opened a door and entered into a dimension 
a dimension of chit-chat, makeup, high heels, and no urinals. You've crossed the threshold into a room of blow-dryers and tampon dispensers. You've crossed over into... the women's room. Jesus Christ, what the fuck did I do? In my wasted state, I must have misread that somewhat confusing graphic delineating between the men's and the women's room, which, let's face it, isn't the most clearly designed image. They look way too similar. It would be a hell of a lot easier to figure out which is which if the men's room had a visual of a guy spluttering pee all over a toilet seat and the women's room had a graphic of two women joined at the hip, as we all know women tend to travel in pairs in public restrooms. I couldn't believe it. I was in the women's room, and then my worst nightmare got worse. The two women must have noticed the middle stall in use by yours truly, a frightened and stealthed church mouse, so they entered the stalls on either side of me. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, the two ladies continued their conversation, blabbing away like I wasn't there while I used every ounce of invisibility strength and clammed up like a fucking clam, praying they didn't ask me for my opinion on whether the water used to soak your feet during a mani-pedi should be cleaner and hotter. And what made it even worse was that while they wore clickety-clackety high heels, I was sitting there in a pair of worn-out pair of Birkenstocks, which could easily be seen under the stall walls. So my first thought was, they must be on to me and wondering what the fuck is that guy doing in the ladies' room. But then it dawned on me. Birkenstocks were often the favorite footwear of lesbians, so hopefully my sandals and hairy legs worked in my favor, which they apparently did, as the Birks allowed me to skirt the issue. So these ladies are jabbering away about Manny Petties, how the 4.0 ladies' tennis team of the club is a caddy click, and how Marlene's weekly Botox injections make her face look as tight as a drum, when I couldn't hold it anymore and let loose a ball-blasting BM barrage that finally quieted the talkative twins. Suddenly, I heard the sound of toilet paper being dispensed to my right, and with the flush and stall exit imminent, I wiped fast and furious, pulled the jeans over my hairy lesbian camouflaged legs, and made a break for it my Birkenstocks lesbian loafers by opening the stall door and jamming without stopping by the sink to wash my hands, brush, or floss my teeth. Fortunately, no one saw me exit the room, and in a cold shirt soaking sweat, I made it back to my seat as the lights dimmed and the band came on stage. After a few seconds, I heard the familiar sound of heels as two women, who I'd never seen, only heard, returned to their seats and unbelievably sat in the row behind me next to their husbands. And the first thing they said to their husbands was how this Birkenstock, hairy-legged, bowl-blasting dyke noisily sat and shat between them in the ladies' room and didn't even wash her what had to be big, hairy, non-manicured, manly hands after laying a brick in the bowl below. Well, I was jarred back to reality by the sound of the attendant's voice at Fiore d'Italia as he opened the door and said, you sure you're okay in there, boss? Holy fuck, I'd gotten so lost in the lesbian latrine fiasco that I hadn't taken care of business yet. So I yelled out, no, all good, just need another minute. Gonna cost you another 20, he yelled back as I heard him laugh. Well, as soon as I heard the door close, I let loose the pent-up, backed-up log and took a satisfying tuba-sounding ball-blasting bomb. It was so freeing, so euphoric, and yet so disgusting that I knew this was a once-in-a-lifetime public toilet event never to be repeated. So I cleaned up, washed up, headed out the door, handed the well-dressed attendant a crisp 20, and walked back to my table. Where the hell you been, Junior? Did you fall in? Bob asked. Fucking Christ! Total shit show in there, dude! I frantically replied. And just as I was about to recant my toilet tale of horror, we saw our lovely server bringing drinks to the table. Bob whispered under his breath, Play along with me, Junior. This could be fun. So our server leans down, her sexy cleavage in plain sight, and replies, 
Kettle one on the rocks for the young protege, Campari and Soda for his wise, handsome mentor. Well, that little compliment was all Bob needed as we toasted, sipped, and he said, Very astute as my protege and I were wondering when you first walked away, full-time waitress or writing a great American novel. Well, doing my part in playing along, I chimed in, Come on, Sensei, without a doubt, hands down, has to be writing a great American novel. Our waitress's eyes lit up, her smile a mile wide. How'd you know? That's amazing. I threw my hands to the side, shrugged my shoulders, and a, what am I, chopped liver? Of course I know the answer kind of motion. As Bob said, what can I say? The kid's a fast study. No, I have no idea exactly why I asked the next question, but Bob and I were in a groove, feeling it on a roll, and so in protege mode asked, always can tell a great story by its opening line. Got one you care to share? The question clearly struck a chord as she put both hands across her perfectly sexy 34B breasts, which in terms of breast size is my nirvana. Not too big, not too small, typically rather perky nipples that harden when aroused and often even when unaroused. So she said, you guys sure you want to hear it? Bob, the master flirter, in fact, I think he had a PhD in philandering, replied, my protege and I couldn't go on living without. Our waitress's smile again lit up the room and she said, Okay, here it goes, as she leaned in closer, and in a sensual, sultry, raspy voice said, Heidi Obramowitz kept giving blowjobs and hoping. Oh. My. God. Are you fucking kidding me? Really? Heidi Obramowitz kept giving blowjobs and hoping? Had to be the greatest opening line ever. I mean, you know, four score and seven, and we the people are high on the list, but tippy-top on the Pulitzer Pyramid has to be Heidi Obramowitz kept giving blowjobs and hoping. Well, Bob and I looked at each other with glee, joy, effervescence, amazement, and yes, with a slightly raised level of testosterone. Well, after that showstopper of an opener, Bob continued, dying to hear the title. Our waitress shook her head side to side, shrugged her shoulders, and said, funny thing is, don't have one yet. I took another swig of wine and said, How about Hopeful Heidi? Hopeful Heidi? Love it! She exclaimed as she leaned down and gave me a big, heartfelt hug. I was over the fucking moon. So Bob, ever the matchmaker, and realizing our food server was even a bit too young for him, finished his Campari and soda and said, One thing we don't have, and I know Junior here would love to know, so we can ask you out when Hopeful Heidi hits the New York Times bestseller list is, What's your name, kiddo? Well, our waitress and would-be great American author picked up our bottle of wine, slowly filled her glasses, placed the bottle down, and said, Name's Helen, but my friends call me Heidi. Well, KG veteran Bob took the Helen Heidi info in stride while I used every ounce of strength to not spit take my full glass of Camus across the room. Bob nonchalantly continued, uh, Not to be too forward, but would your last name happen to be Abramowitz? She leaned in closely, her attractive faces inches from Bob's, whispered sexily, No, it's Abrams. But my great-grandparents shortened it upon arriving to Alice Island. Their last name was Abramowitz, as she smiled and winked. Bob grinned, gathered himself, and asked, You mean to tell me you're Heidi Abramowitz? She grabbed the bottle of Camus, topped off both her glasses, and said, Abramowitz is my mom's side of the family. Dad's side is Fishman. So it's Fishman, Heidi Fishman. Upon hearing Fishman, this time I couldn't control myself and did spit take my wine into my half-full glass. Everything all right there, Junior? Bob asked. I collected myself. 
looked up at Helen slash Heidi and asked, That wouldn't be Fishman of the World Round Fishman's Man Journal's flashcard, would it? Oh, geez, Heidi sighed, so it embarrassed covering her face. You know about the splashcards? Fishman's? The real people, real service, real value company? What guy hasn't heard of Fishman's? Not necessarily the greatest product to be associated with, you think? Heidi replied. Oh, contraire, mon ami, I said. Fishman's rock. Well, Heidi chuckled, moved in closer toward me and said, Well, since you seem to be so well-versed and enthusiastic about my family's business, can I ask you something? Fire away. How do you like the slogan, Fishman's? Real people, real service, real value? Oh, boy. Talk about being caught between a rock and a splash guard. I paused for a sec, trying to get a read off Heidi, but couldn't pick up a thing. What if she liked it or had a hand in coming up with a tagline? Do I be honest and risk offending her? Well, you know what? They say fortune favors the bold. So I said, in all honesty, not in love with the slogan. Think you guys could have capitalized on the product a bit more with a wittier, creative slogan that appeals to guys. You know, something like, Fishman's, you'll piss like a racehorse. Holy shit, she yelled as she high-fived me. That's the kind of shit I've been telling my dad for years. Told him he should change that lame-ass tagline to Fishman's. Don't piss your life away. Well, that one brought down the house and we left our asses off. So after a few moments, Bob raised his glass and toast and said, Helen, Heidi, Abrams, Abramowitz, Fishman, or whatever name or names you want to go by, here's to the successful completion of your great American novel. To which Helen, Heidi, Abrams, Abramowitz, Fishman replied, Yeah, guess I better quit this waitressing gig because it's time to piss or get off the pot. And all three of us simultaneously chimed in, The perfect new slogan for Fishman's! Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Berg's Brain and hope you enjoyed the ride. Special thanks to my close friend, musical director, guitar legend, and graham cracker aficionado, Jeff Peapod Miller. If you like Berg's Brain, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Check out our website at bergsbrain.buzzsprout.com. And if you want to touch base, email me at bergsbrainpod at gmail.com. Peapod, play us out on your new hit single, Heidi, 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 Hopeful. That's all the rage in every top Michelin-rated Italian restaurant across this great country.